Good morning, and welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm author and host Kevin Hopkins, and today, this is episode 51. We're starting in Revelation chapter 16, verse 1. We have seen the announcement in the kind of interlude that happened in in chapter 15 that the seven bowls of God's wrath are to be poured out. They have been given to the angels who held the last seven plagues. Their task is to mix them all together and pour them out on the earth. So we start today in Revelation 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Be on your way to begin pouring out on the earth the seven offering bowls containing the wrath of God. The first one departed and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and harmful and festering sores afflicted those people who had the brand of the beast and worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as if from a corpse, and every living creature in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they too became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters saying, Righteous are you who is and who was the Holy One, for you have decided to inflict these punishments on those who poured out the blood of God's people and the prophets. So now you have given them blood to drink, and of this they are worthy. I then heard someone from the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was permitted to burn people with fire. People were burned by the intense heat. They reviled the name of God who had the authority over these plagues, but they did not repent nor give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his offering bowl upon the throne of the beast, so that the beast's kingdom was plunged into utter darkness. Consequently, people bit their tongues because of the pain, and they reviled the God of heaven because of their sufferings and their sores, yet they did not repent of their behavior. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters dried up so that a road was made ready for the kings from the east. Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs emerge from the mouth of the dragon, of the beast, and of the false prophet. These are spirits, that is, demons producing signs, who travel to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Then in parentheses this comment, Watch, says Jesus, I am coming like a thief. How fortunate is the one who is alert and remains fully clothed, lest he go around naked and people see his shamefulness. Verse 16, the demonic spirits gathered them all together at the place called Armageddon in Hebrew. Wow, there's a lot here. And the first part of of chapter 16, the first verse, is about the, the announcement, the calling for these angels 
to dispense the bowls of God's wrath, to go and, and pour them out with the plagues that they were carrying for the final judgment of the earth. The first one goes out and pours out his bowl and painful festering sores break out on all who had the brand of the beast and worshiped his image. I want you to notice something here. Not simply that this is a, a replica of one of the plagues on Israel or on Egypt. The original set of plagues in the Bible was taken out on Egypt, right? And and painful sores, festering sores, was one of those plagues. This is a targeted plague. It befalls those who have the mark of the beast and who worship his image. It doesn't befall the entire world. It's targeted. So we're left to ask, why? Well, why were the original plagues targeted at Egypt? Because they held God's children captive. The original set of plagues that descended on Egypt were meant for one purpose, and that was to soften the heart of Pharaoh, to turn him to the point that he would repent and let Israel go. But he wouldn't, and so the plagues continued. The purpose here is to turn the hearts of those who will be turned. But you're going to see that there aren't any left. These misfortunes fall on those whose hearts are against God. And, and good Jewish people would say, well, that's exactly what happens to people who don't follow God. They suffer misfortune. God worked creation out that way. So that when you encounter misfortune, you can ask yourself, hmm, am I going the wrong direction? Am I walking away from God? And so he's trying to get my attention? That's the purpose in Hebrew thought of almost all suffering. Unless it's redemptive suffering, which we do in order to redeem someone else. And the Jews believed that that was the calling of their nation was to be the ones who would suffer for the sins of the entire world and thereby bring them God's redemption. It's why they don't hear the message of Jesus Christ very well. He suffered for the sins of the entire world. And Jewish people are like, yeah, that's what we do, <laughs> right? So it's, it's really interesting here that the plagues are focused. They're meant to bring any last ounce of repentance and, and turning away from evil that they can. But you watch, it doesn't happen. The second angel pours out his bowl on the sea. It becomes blood. The Bible says like from a corpse, which is, uh, is to say that it's, it's half congealed, black, you know, a, a dead person's blood, if they've been dead for any time at all is starting to set up and, and it's clotty and clumpy and gross. And every living creature in the sea died. Wait a minute. It doesn't have any effect on the people, on the unrighteous people. No, it doesn't exist. This verse doesn't exist to show you how God punishes the people. It exists to show you that 
all of creation pays the price for the sin of men. That's been the truth since the garden. Remember, Adam and Eve sinned. They were tricked into sinning, but yet they sinned. And so as a result, right away, two members of creation lost their lives so that Adam and Eve could be clothed in their skins. Tricky thing about hides, you got to take the previous owner out before someone else can can wear them. God took the, the lives of part of his creation to clothe Adam and Eve in their sin so that they wouldn't be ashamed. We'll see that in a minute. But all of creation loses their regents, their co-regents. Adam and Eve's names weren't Adam and Eve. If you read when Eve is created and Adam wakes up, he says, this now is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, the English says princess, because she was taken from the prince. The Hebrew says she will be called Isha because she came from Ish. Those were their names. They had royal names. They had titles. Before they fell, when they fell, God names them Adam, which simply means the man, and Eve, which simply means mother. He gave them utilitarian names in exchange for their royal titles because they'd lost their royalty. Now, if they existed in this perfect garden with all the animals that Adam had named, and they fell away from God, so did creation. So did all of those animals. They had to come with Adam and Eve so that now instead of eating from every tree of the garden, they kill the animals and eat them. Instead of being regents in charge of the care of those animals, now they're preying on them for food. You see, All of creation suffers when people are unrighteous. And that's what this second plague stands to show. Every creature in the sea dies. Not one of them has done a thing wrong. But because unrighteousness rules the world, creation suffers. Now, we could depart here into all kinds of discussions. And if you're a Christian who believes that we're called to be stewards of the earth and we have failed at that at that job. And so because of our irresponsibility to the, the ecology of this world, it suffers, I'm with you. Absolutely true. All of creation suffers because we've not taken care of it. We've not been good stewards. Is the climate changing? I don't know that. And I'm not convinced that the evidence shows that. Are the oceans rising? I don't know that. And I'm not convinced the evidence shows that. Those are ancillary issues to the fact that all of creation suffers because we, men and women, have forsaken our stewardship of creation. And and I don't want to depart down any of those rabbit trails But if you're thinking about them, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what God's trying to say here. Creation suffers when men are unrighteous. The third one pours out his bowl on the rivers and springs, and they too become like blood. But it doesn't say anything dies 
or anyone suffers. John hears a voice that says, Righteous are you who is and was the Holy One, for you have decided to inflict these punishments, and from those who drew the blood of the righteous and the prophets, you are giving them blood to drink. This idea of poetic justice. It's really interesting that the second plague is about the idea of creational stewardship, and the third plague is about poetic justice, that those who shed blood drink blood, that those who have been violent reap violence. They poured out the blood of God's people and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, and they are worthy of that. This idea of poetic justice is an idea that almost unites the Bible, that those who do violence get violence, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a limb for a limb, a finger for a finger. Whatever you've cost someone, you have to repay. Except when Jesus comes. And Jesus established a different justice system in which there could be redemption and forgiveness for those who would take it from him. But see, in this last picture of, of, of mankind on earth, those who didn't receive redemption from Christ are still under this poetic justice. The fourth angel pulls out his bowl upon the sun. And in previous iterations of this plague, it has been darkened. There was a plague of darkness on Egypt. There was a plague of darkness earlier in the book of Revelation when the sun was cursed. But this time it's different. Now the sun is, the Bible says, permitted in verse 8 of chapter 16. And the sun was permitted. Its boundaries were removed by God. And it was allowed to burn the people with fire. They were burned by intense heat. They reviled the name of God who had the authority over these plagues but they did not repent nor give glory to him. Throughout scripture, fire is equivalent to human passion. The sin that comes from human passion is equated consistently to the burning of fire within those people and their passions burned. It's a, it's a fairly frequent citation in scripture. I think that's what's at work here. This plague is the is the plague of burning, but not being consumed. The, the plague of burning and feeling the intense heat and yet not being able to do anything about it. That's how inflamed hungers and thirsts and passions feel. It feels like such an immense need and longing that you can't do anything about it. But Christ does and can and does, right? Christ changed the longings of my heart to, to, to hungering and thirsting after him. And he satiates those, those hungers, those needs. Here, the plague is that the sun's boundaries are removed and its burning becomes intense. 
And rather than seek the help of God, the people reviled the name of God because he was in charge of these plagues. But they did not repent nor give him glory. I look at my world today and it's like it's on fire. The passions burn in every direction. The emotional instabilities burn in every direction. The mental illness burns in every direction. And yet, people point fingers, they don't turn to God. It gets worse. The fifth angel pours out his offering bowl upon the throne of the beast and his entire kingdom is plunged into darkness. Here's the darkness, but it's not darkness from the sun. It's spiritual darkness. Consequently, people bit their tongues because of the pain. Now in verse 10, John sees the angel pouring out his bowl on the throne of the beast and the entire kingdom is plunged into darkness. It doesn't say there's pain with that darkness, but in the next phrase, still in verse 10, as a consequence, as a result, people bit their tongues because of the pain they were in. And they reviled the God of heaven because of their suffering and their sores, but they did not repent of their behavior. Wow, that's my world. In just the last week, my, my culture has suffered multiple mass shootings. Several are probably copycats of the previous ones. But it started, it didn't start, but the first that gained national prominence 10 days ago was a white kid who, who brought a gun to a black supermarket in a predominantly black neighborhood and started killing black people just because of the color of their skin. He planned that attack. He set himself up to go kill black people. The next was a school shooting where a teenager, an 18-year-old kid, shot up a neighborhood, walked into an elementary school, barricaded himself into a room with 20-some-odd teachers and kids, killed the two teachers, and killed 18 or 19 of the kids. Absolute evil. When you can look a 10-year-old kid in the face before shooting them in the face, your heart is beyond lost. But as a result, now there have been two or three other copycat shootings. A couple have been uh, stopped before they could happen. One happened today in Tulsa, Oklahoma, very close to where I live. People shooting other people to get attention. And how does the world respond? In absolute darkness. I know that my world is steeped in darkness by the way they point fingers at each other. Whose fault is it? That's what we look for. There's a school shooting. Whose fault is it? Whose, whose fault is it that a white kid goes into a, a black supermarket and kills black people? Oh, it's those evil white supremacists. It's those video game manufacturers. It's the gun lobby. It's the liberals. It's it's the conservatives. It's the Christians. I've heard that one today. 
And very few people say, well, it would be the responsibility of the evil person who pulled the trigger. I don't hear that anywhere, anytime. Everybody wants to know that person's identity because if he belongs to one race or the other, we can point fingers at the other races. And nobody says, that's a crazy person with a really wicked heart. And the problem is that we live in a society that has forsaken God, that lives in utter darkness and doesn't take care of our teenagers' hearts. I haven't heard that once. My president thinks it's a certain caliber of weapon. My political leaders think it's a need for more laws. It's none of those things. It's darkness. The, the kingdom of the beast has been plunged into utter darkness so that they talk and they twist their tongues around trying to make some kind of blame cast until they're so confused they're biting their own tongues in the misery of their souls. But they never get to the root of the problem. They revile God because of their suffering, but they don't repent of their behavior. Today I was on social media, and it's been the same for the last 10 days or so. Christian people trying to mean well post things like, our thoughts and prayers are with the families of those who've lost loved ones. And last week, some ding-dong posted on social media this now famous post that said a curse word, blank your prayers. Wait, what? You don't want prayer? Blank your prayers, meaning go do something else. Do something that makes a difference. And I said, well, why wouldn't you want people to pray? And a person responded to me and said, prayers don't stop violence. And I said, oh, but wait, you don't know that. You don't know how bad the violence might be if no one were praying. And they sent me laughing emojis and they made fun of me. But it's the truth. I can't, I can't prove the causality of prayer. I can't prove that it, that it defeats violence or that it keeps violence from happening. But I can't also prove that it doesn't. I don't know, but it keeps my heart from being violent. It keeps my heart from being in the wrong place. If I can feel compassion and pain for those who've lost a loved one, that keeps me grounded in the things of Christ. I don't want there to be violence. I may be a Christian person who believes in the, in the Constitution of the United States, but I don't want there to be violence. I don't believe anybody's freedoms merit killing someone else for the sheer sake of doing violence. Not at all. So I look at my world and I understand it lives in absolute darkness. It writhes, it complains, it points fingers, it bites its own tongue because it gets so frustrated with the things that it can't fix, that it can't change, that it has no answer except God. And they won't turn to God. 
And so in the misery of that pain, they bite their own tongues. They, they trip over their own words. They're so, they're so bent on destruction. Then the sixth angel pours out his bowl on the river Euphrates, and it dries up to clear the way for the kings of the east to come towards Israel and engage God in the final battle. The river Euphrates has always been the dividing line between the kingdom of Assyria, the kingdom of Babylon, all of those eastern kingdoms, and Israel. It was the border that provided some kind of security because it's a big river and it's not easy to cross most of the year. And so those kings in the east had to kind of stay in the east. But if it dries up, the path is open. It's not that they walk in the riverbed because the river flows pretty much north to south. It's that now that barrier to destruction is no longer there and here they come. And I saw unclean spirits, three of them, like frogs. The plague of Egypt was frogs. And the frogs invaded people's homes and their beds and their tables. They were everywhere. And, and Pharaoh says, Moses, take away these frogs. Moses says, okay, I'll take them away whenever you decide they should be taken. And Pharaoh says, okay, tomorrow. A friend of mine recorded a song, the title of which is One More Night with the Frogs. And he points out that Pharaoh chose tomorrow? Why wouldn't you choose right now? Has he become so comfortable with the frogs that he wants to spend one more night with them? It's the weirdest thing, right? But it's, a, it's an absolute picture of our world. I can remove this pain by removing all this sin. When would you like it to go? Well, we don't want the pain, but we kind of like our sin. How about tomorrow? I saw three spirits that looked like frogs come out of the mouth of each, the dragon, the beast, and here he calls the second beast the false prophet, emphasizing that his influence is spiritual, that he is a deceiver with a spiritual background. He's not a political figure. He's a, he's a, he's a church structure that has lost its power and is deceiving people. Kind of like the church structures now in our culture. They're spirits, demonic, sign-producing beings who travel to the kings of the world and gather the entire world for battle on the great day of God. Then this parenthetical, Jesus says, watch, I'm coming like a thief in the night. How fortunate is the one who is alert and remains fully clothed so that he doesn't go around naked and people don't see his shamefulness. And the demonic spirits gathered them together at the place called, in Hebrew, Armageddon. Armageddon. What is Armageddon? What is this place? It's it's got a Hebrew name, so it's a real place, right? Yes, it is. It's Har Megiddo. Uh, to archaeologists, it's Tel Megiddo, the, the mound at Megiddo. 
but before it was a mound for archaeologists, it was a vi- it was a city. It was a place. And it's been a place of battle throughout its history. It was it, it it's it's significant uh militarily, strategically, because it sits on a hill and it overlooks a pass into which you can move from the east into the Valley of Jezreel, which will give you free passage all the way down to Jerusalem, all the way to Egypt, in fact. It's the place where... uh, it's, it's in the mountains of Carmel where Elijah did battle with the prophets of Baal. It's the place where the Assyrians came through that pass and into the valley of Jezreel and, and took the northern kingdom of Israel hostage. Tiglath-Pileser was that guy's name. You can read about him in history. And besieged Jerusalem. Walked right down the valley of Jezreel. The Samaritans got out of his way. And so they were always seen by the Jews in Jerusalem as traitors. And they let him besiege Jerusalem. But before that, like 1,500 years before Jesus, the Egyptians came and did battle with the Canaanites at Megiddo to try and subjugate them and make them vassals of the the Egyptian kingdom. And they won. So the the, the Israelites, the Canaanites in those days, were were made subjects of of that pharaoh now the assyrians came down other cultures came conquered israel conquered megiddo took it as their territory and controlled the valley of jezreel drove the egyptians out but the egyptians came back under ramses and attacked canaan and fought at Megiddo. Uh, They were repulsed, repelled, and Assyrians took over the Valley of Jezreel in that area. But that didn't last. You know why? Because Egyptians came back up the Valley of Jezreel. And where did they fight? At Megiddo, because it oversaw the, it was the high ground that oversaw the valley. It's just south of modern day Haifa. If you want to look on a map of Israel up in the northern part of the hourglass-shaped country of Israel, you'll see Haifa, and just south of that is Megiddo. It was this place of battle for the control of God's promised land. It was the place where the battles were fought for the control of God's promised land. And so it serves as the perfect figurative setting for the final battle for control over God's kingdom. It's going to be a spiritual battle. It's being fought already. But Armageddon serves as the archetype for it. I know, you like me, grew up reading all kinds of books about the battle of Armageddon. Hal Lindsey's great book, The Battle of Armageddon. Uh, Papa Hagen's book about Armageddon. I read them all. Dispensationalist ideas about China and Russia, the evil kingdoms coming against the, the geopolitical state of Israel and nuclear weapons melting down 
all of the Russians and the Chinese, well, that would also melt down all of Israel. All of that was was a misunderstanding, a misinterpretation of what's at work here in Revelation chapter 16. The gathering for battle. What's the encouragement? The encouragement is that you can see it coming. I know. They call you a, a conspiracy theorist. They make fun of you because you think that prayer is an appropriate response. I get it. I suffer the same things. But Revelation chapter 16 says, you're the one who's clothed. You're the one who's aware. You're the one who's awake. You're the one who sees what's coming. You may not know the hour. We don't. I heard a prophet today, a self-proclaimed prophet say, I know exactly what God's going to do. Well, nobody knows exactly what God's going to do. But I promise you, just as Paul thought it would happen in his lifetime, just as John thought the clouds were gathering for the final confrontation in his lifetime, it looks to me like we're closer in my lifetime. That this ultimate confrontation between evil, an evil that even kills unborn children on this earth, and the righteousness of God, it seems that it has to be coming to a head. I don't need a previous president to come back and take office and save me from it. He can't. This is the direction that this world goes. It's decaying under our feet. The encouragement today is you're not part of that decay. You are clothed. You are awake. You are ready for the return of Christ. Speak into this world the things that you see. Take the side of righteousness. Take the side of good. Offer your prayer. Offer your support. Reach out and rescue, as the Bible says, the perishing. Take everybody we can with us. Speak while we can still speak and see some measure of repentance and redemption for people in this world because the time is shorter and shorter. Go today and be about the work of God in our lives. <music>